Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Today I'm joined by Audrey McGibbon, and this is a really important conversation to finish off 2021, all around wellness and well-being in the leadership lens. How do we help ourselves as leaders to make sure we are as well as we can be and therefore do the job of leadership as well as we can be? Audrey is a psychologist of renown, having worked all over the world with SHL and other organizations, particularly in leadership assessment and leadership development. She's also the co-creator of the Global Leadership Wellness Survey, and we talk about that in our conversation today. I've known Audrey for quite a while, I'm familiar with her work, and I came across a blog she wrote on LinkedIn in the second half of 2021 where she described herself hitting the wall, as she says. And it struck me, here's someone who knows a lot about this topic and through no fault of her own, hit the wall. So I reached out to her and said, let's have a chat about this because she and I know many leaders who feel like they are hitting a wall in the second half of 2021. We talk about wellness, what does it really mean? And particularly in the lens of leadership and in virtual leadership, given the world will not return to full normality, maybe never again. So therefore, virtual leadership will become more of the norm. We talk about the loss of control, loss of meaning, loss of clarity. And how do leaders use micro habits to underpin their own sense of resilience and equanimity? We talk about the bias of leaders taking on a lot of work. And therefore, where does personal accountability versus leadership accountability and followership fall into the mix? We describe the resilience versus endurance and what are the differences or indeed what does languishing actually mean? More importantly, we walk through some tips and ideas for leaders to help implement for themselves and their teams to ensure a healthy level of well-being is predominantly available to everybody in the team and particularly for the leader in order for them to be able to do the job as well as they possibly can. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. Your best clue to knowing where you need to set boundaries is about where you find yourself getting cranky. So a boundary might be with your children. You know, you set the boundaries around who's getting access to the television when you're all trying to see the same thing. But your time boundaries, and you see time boxing, you're bookending the days. If you don't do it, and you're doing the whole late night bedtime procrastination thing. What are you cranky with about yourself where you think tomorrow I'm going to do that differently? That's where you say, that's what I need to fix. Welcome to the Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Audrey, to this latest episode of The Leadership Diet. Great to see you today. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's lovely to see you too. Nice to be here. Well, I, I reached out to you on a number of levels. Like we, We've known each other for quite a while, but I saw a posting you did on LinkedIn in early August, which really grabbed my attention 
on a number of levels. The headline was, I hit the wall. I remember feeling at the time, I have quite a few times in the last 12 months hit the wall and I hear a lot of people saying this. And then you very honestly and very vulnerably described deafness that you had suddenly realized you were deaf in one ear and it was a physical reaction to an ongoing levels of stress in the previous weeks and months. And I thought, wow, this is someone who knows about this space really, really well and yet succumbed to you know, the manifestation of stress. So, A, thank you for writing that and B, thank you for coming to the call today. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about it if you'd, if you'd like to. And it was interesting for me. I, I didn't feel it was a particularly vulnerable thing. I didn't feel ashamed. I just thought, God, you know what? I know all this stuff and I am vulnerable and I am, you know, it's a case of physician heal myself. And I guess I didn't do a particularly good job at that time. I did stop. I, I did take a, a ease off and take a break. But that hitting the wall was the most peculiar sensation because it wasn't an emotional sadness or flatness. It wasn't depression. I actually felt my brain hurting. So on the Friday night before I went to bed, I was like, oh, man, it's been such an intense week. And I feel really blessed. I love my work. I love what I do. But I also love chocolate cake and like chocolate cake. You can just have too much of a good thing. And honestly, that's what it was. It was several weeks of having too much of a good thing. You know, every man and his dog is in the sort of leadership well-being and the world's changing and it is brilliantly interesting and meaningful and absorbing and I just was not disciplined about not eating too much of my work those weeks leading up to it so I went to bed cracking headache and on the Saturday morning I thought I'm actually deaf in one ear and I had it once before in my life so I knew what it was and how I feel is that emotionally actually I'm really pretty good at the stress stuff I don't anymore get anxious I did younger it's not an emotional thing but my body was stressed my body and you know the body doesn't lie and the body remembers oh there's so many books written about it the mind body connection and my irony is I've been running these sessions on the disconnect between our allegedly rational task focused brains that are busy doing and kind of we shove down all our sort of emotional behavioral stuff and I was doing exactly the same so it's hard isn't it it is hard. And, and why I reached out to you on, I think on, the, on the next day, I think it was, because what you described in your LinkedIn post was the you know, effectively cognitive reserve had just gone. You, know, you, you didn't feel sad. You weren't emotionally upset about something, but the juice was gone in terms of you'd run out of the tank. And a lot of leaders around the world. And so I was really keen to chat to you from someone who knows not just the physical reaction of what you posted in August, but the whole notion of wellness is an area of expertise that you have in abundance. So I wanted to reach out to you, have a chat to you about that. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the very beginning. Grew up in Scotland. You went into uni to do law and then you realized, nah, that's not what I want to do. And you end up doing psychology and business. I did. And then you you walked into exec assessment. Talk us through that little part of your life. Okay, so law wasn't for me. The buildings were really impressive. I realized now I'm very aesthetically driven. I love the law buildings in Edinburgh. But the psychology department was even cooler. It's a beautiful Georgian terrace and it had a kindergarten where they were actually seemed to be experimenting on real babies. I'm not, I'm not sure that we'd get through the ethics department these days. I'm also quite sociable and I met some pretty cool people there. And one of the lovely things about the Scottish education system is you can jump anytime into a different undergrad degree. So I remember phoning home, mum, dad, I'm not going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a psychologist. They're lovely, but I could sense their disappointment. Neither of them went to uni. I think they rather fancied a lawyer in the family. And my mum's a warrior. Oh, you'll never get a job, darling. 
And of course, I spent a long time working with lawyers. Of course. Since graduating with psychology. So that was how I did it. And then I sort of fell into, I was really, really lucky. I sort of bluffed my way, I think, into a top-notch job with Savile and Holdsworth, as they were then, a SHL group, and spent many years measuring leaders and employees, measuring every aspect of their... As an assessment centre type measurement? or, or yeah, assessment yeah. centre, psychometric testing, psychometric test development, norming, benchmarking, validation studies. So yeah, I did that and loved the organisation, loved the space. I've just, I have been lucky in my career. And then hopped over to Australia for a year in 19, I can't even remember, 1995 or 1996. And the Australian business was growing quite a lot at that time. So I had my first management position there at the ripe old age of 24. It was obscene. It was ridiculous. And it was just an interesting time, pre-internet, mid to late 90s, business growing really fast, built up a consulting team, had a blast, loved it. But when I look back, I also think I had my first taste. Didn't know at the time, but I think I would say it was burnout. Growing up 24-7, I loved it. It was an environment, it was quite a hothousey environment. Lots of opportunities. The company was growing. We floated on the London Stock Exchange and my boss got promoted and I got promoted. I ended up being the Australian MD, you know, at stupid young age, really. I guess as a business, we were all about competencies and potential. And I look back and I think, yeah, that's all great. But actually experience does sort of count too. I'm a bit embarrassed when I look back and think, oh God, that was so green. But I loved it and it was great and I learned so much. But it didn't work with having a baby. So I waited a long time for my first baby much sought after and then I pretty quickly thought you know what in those days that would have been 2001 cannot do this I cannot jump on and off planes my mother had come over from Scotland I'm feeding a baby in the airport I'm going to Korea and I'm coming back it's nuts which looks and sounds very exciting you know the young consultant traveling all over Asia Pacific area and but the reality of your life hit you that this is not as exciting as it sounds not as exciting as it sounds it was but it's not now And it's not what I want for me in my life at this time. And it was a real moment, actually, because, you know, the the wisdom, the prevailing wisdom around Western ideals of success and career achievements. A lot of my friends and colleagues and boss, you know, are you mad? Are you stepping away from this great organization in a growth market when you're in a senior executive position reporting to a main board of a public company? You must be nuts. Actually, if I look back and truthfully, I just kind of, I played the mum card because nobody could argue with me. It was very politically incorrect. But I was, oh, well, you know, I really just want to be with my baby. Truth be told, I was bored. I was done. Too much of a good thing. There's a real art, I think, Patrick, in knowing when it's time to go, when it's time for something else. You've loved the book, but the book comes to an end. Do you know where you wanted to go next or just it was just time to go and then I'll figure the next part later? I just wanted to simplify. So okay. I was genuinely in love with this new baby who subsequently has called me an email. <laughs> the brochure yes. doesn't go past age 13, does it? And that's for a reason. But anyway. I've got five of those. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's another story. And you're not my therapist, so I'll save that for another day. But I knew I wanted to simplify and I knew I wanted to get back on the tools because I love doing the one-on-one work and the assessment focus from the FHL days, although, you know, we would have done some development. It wasn't the deep development, the deep leadership one-on-one work and the deep intact teamwork that I was drawn to and I'd had a bit of a taste of it and so I just thought I'll just do my own thing and do a little bit of freelancing work and I set up my tiny little business Eek Business Psychology it was then and I had a great time and it was only supposed to be until 
kids were old enough to go into school, but one's just turned 20 and the other's, I was at her graduation ceremony for year 12 this morning, virtual. And yeah, I haven't got myself a proper job yet. So I know that I wanted it for flexibility and simplicity and to do work that was enjoyable again. I felt a bit fraudulent in that whole senior exec space. Right, right. Well, you had your own business, you still have your own business, but you, you, your original idea morphed into something quite different. And the Global Leadership Wellness Survey is, is, is what you're probably known for these days and the whole idea of being an expert in wellness within the workplace. Before I jump into that, talk, what, what is wellness? Let, 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 let's get a platform of understanding because wellness you know, goes from you know, the Byron Bay spa house to feeling really, really zen to feeling actually very in control of who you are. What's your view of wellness? It really does depend on who it is that you ask as to what answer you get. And if you're a physician or an economist or a sociologist or a philosopher or a therapist, you'll get a different response. And I think that that's one thing that's important to acknowledge, that there is some validity to that. You can take a photograph of you from one angle and take 20 different photographs from a different angle. It's still you, it's just you might not recognize it. My take on it is that well-being is a very delicate balancing act between the various challenges and demands that are coming at us in life in all aspects of who we are and what we do. So whether it's our professional identities, our personal, some sort of blended, whether it's about being a daughter, sister, wife, mother, boss, client, blah, whatever it is, anything that's coming at us, that is something I have to rise to the challenge of meeting that demand, or if I choose to. And what are my resources to meet those demands and challenges? So do I have enough access? Do I have enough wherewithal at my fingertips? Um, do I have enough social support? Do I have enough cognitive energy left to, to go there? So it's about the balancing act between the demands that are coming at us in life and the resources that we have at our disposal. And I use the broadest possible term of resources with which we rise to meet those. And when they're commensurate with one another, that is a sweet spot. That's when we're flourishing. But it is something that's far more changeable than personality or attitude. It's, it, it is delicate. And I guess one of the tricky bits about working in the space is it's so impacted by so many different variables that trying to get a handle on it, both as a practitioner and a professional, but also as a, you know, if you're in a senior leadership role, it is deceptively complex. I mean, it's probably not helped by the popularity of the wellness movement where it is absolutely around your diet, sleep, nutrition, exercise, rest, which are all important, but that's not really, that's a part of what I mean, but ours is a much more multidimensional take. Okay. Much more holistic take on it. Was that a clear, succinct answer, Patrick? It was. I think it was as clear as the topic allows, because you, you, you quite rightly say it's it's not a straightforward, simple topic which society likes simplicity, and it's not that. And indeed, I think in the current environment we're in, with the elongated version of of the pandemic that's hit the whole world, is become even more complex because the resources we need around us to help us meet the challenges of the day. Well, those challenges keep evolving and, and keep changing, and therefore the resources are not as obvious as they might have been. So I, I, th- I think it's become Absolutely. a more complex conversation than it might have been two or three years ago. But you mentioned the word flourishing, and, and I wanted to talk about that for a second, because in the last few months, I've just noticed a whole lot of articles written around languishing. And of course, languishing and flourishing are on a similar continuum, either end of a continuum, if you will. If you think it through the lens that you think of wellness, and you and I are work in the corporate sector, so we're, we're specifically talk, talking about wellness within that sector, and, and I suppose for this conversation for leaders, what's your sense of flourishing and languishing today? It's very different to how it was pre-COVID. 
So the, the term languishing has become sort of quite a nom de jour. I think people do relate to it. And there was a great TED talk by Adam Grant and the New York Times has picked it up. So it is very topical. But pre-COVID, what we would have seen was, you know, you could really reliably predict that well-being would be quite normally distributed in an organisation. Thus, about one in five of your employees and or leadership population would be flourishing, thriving. One in five would be languishing, which is this state that is the absence of positive well-being. And it's not indicative necessarily of mental illness symptoms being experienced by employees, but there's a lot of warning flags. It's sort of like a middle child. Right. So you would have one in five in that space of more than struggling. They're really on the cusp of experiencing some illness or experiencing illness. And the rest, that sort of missing 60% would be somewhere between striving and struggling. Okay. Since the pandemic, and I've been pulling this on a regular basis, yep. the one in five, so that 20%, that's dropped to a maximum of eight, 9% in a um, leadership population. And in some organizations, it's a zero, just absolutely not, not one single leader is identifying. And this is on an anonymous de-identified basis. Nobody's identifying. So there's no pressure for them to say they are. But what's really interesting to come back to the popularity of the term languishing is we haven't seen an explosion in the languishing box. So the languishing word, when it's just used in the popular vernacular, that's taken off. But when you define it in the way of how Kurikis originally conceived of it, really the box that people that I'm working with and, and in our corporate client base, those senior leaders, and Patrick, what they are really identifying with is the notion of it, we are struggling right. and it's a very unfamiliar feeling. I'm really glad you, you clarify that because my, my own qualitative experience with no instruments to back it up is the sense of flourishing is diminished dramatically and the sense of struggling is increasing and is struggling with a sense of, look, I'm exhausted. I'm at you know, the virtual exhaustion. I'm at home the whole time, working longer hours on more calls via a camera on my computer while managing homeschooling. And indeed, one, one leader I worked with last, last week shared with me how he had to move his office desk onto the spare sink in the spare bathroom and the shower curtain became his whiteboard. Right, just because of the the physical environment he lives in, he lives in an apartment, and so they're using the, the spare bathroom as the office. That's the reality of his life. That's a real physical struggle to mind anything else. And this is a relatively senior leader in a tech company. So the struggling part is, I think, you know, the the, the lack of control of your life. In some cases, loss of meaning that goes with that. The loss of clarity in the sense of when will we get out of here? I think you're right. Is leading to an overarching sense of struggle. There's a lot in there. It's linked back also to your earlier observations around the complexity of what makes up the demands and the challenges and indeed our resources because here we've got a situation where in general demands and challenges have increased but for some people it's because they're working out of the bathroom and for others it's because they're feeling really lonely and isolated and the notions of control are so true so it's a complicated issue for organizations and leaders to address because some of those challenges and demands are inside of our control but many of them are not many of them are influenced by our own bosses or the board and many of them are beyond the control of those people again. So it's like there's, there's a big pincer movement to be done if we're to try and improve well-being. But I'm probably possibly getting ahead of myself there. So it, it is very complex. 
But before, before we jump into, into some potential ideas and solutions, I, I think it's worth staying with this for a second. Like the current notion of struggle will only stay as it is whilst folks are still in the current environment. And as long as the current environment extends, we'll be here. What are you seeing as the potential implications of that, either for the individual, their families, their teams or the organisations? So my research is on this kind of leadership cohort, and that is really significant because we know that the health and well-being of a young adult population versus a lower socioeconomic group, unemployment, different housing conditions, indeed, unfortunately, extremely topical, but war-torn parts of the world, different political persuasions, all of those things impact well-being. So, But if we shrink it back to the leaders and what are we predicting around the struggling leaders who in many senses are a very privileged cohort and one thing that's stayed the same through all of the data by the way Patrick which is a protective factor is the sense of gratitude so even if we're feeling struggling or languishing Mm -hmm. there is something at the back of our brains that says perspective here there's still a lot there are others who are struggling worse but in the moment that doesn't actually deliver much relief or bring joy the fact that somebody else is more miserable than you or doesn't really yeah. kind of help boost you. I've heard that comment more and more and more in the last like month. You, know, you say to somebody, so how are you going? Look, it's all relative. You know, compared to some of the people I know, I'm, I'm leading a five-star lockdown experience, but it's still crap. So that's probably the one word answer that I could have given to how do you define well-being? It's objective. So it is, it is in our experience and we can intellectually know what somebody else has that's different and worse than us, but it doesn't correct. So the struggling bit, Patrick, is I don't think this is only because of the impact of the pandemic, because it's not as if leading into the pandemic, we had this whole echelon of senior leaders and professionals that were sitting with their feet up, having a a lovely, relaxed, chilled out time. The whole reason I got into this space was because I actually can't peddle my wares as a leadership development specialist, as an executive coach, as somebody who's going to do good work with pop teams until I found a way of bringing the human in front of me into the room to say, what do you need right now? Because honestly, you're not in a, you're not in a fit state to be of much use to your team or to engage them. I wouldn't engage with you in the way that you are. You're irritated and cranky and underslept and stressed out and falling apart. So pre-pandemic, there was the World Health Organization announced its own epidemic of a different sort, the stress epidemic, which was linked then to all the work on burnout that happened. And that's culminated recently with the new ISO standard that came out in relation to psychological health. And this is, so for all of the leaders listening in, this is the sign that employee, including your own well-being, is moving into the regulated territory. So that's maybe a, a podcast for another day. But it's the piece around the decline of senior leader well-being is, is not a new thing since the start of the pandemic. The pressures have been elevating really since 2000, but definitely since the global financial crisis. We've seen an elevation and an escalation at all levels, but particularly senior roles. And it's a do more with less. There's more demands and fewer resources. It's quite simple, basic mathematics. And that's not yet a message, I think, that's really being embraced in the boardroom. I think the boardroom and the, the C-suite are fully on board now with well-being is important. We need to look after our people. But there's a bit of a longer conversation around the adjustments that one might need to make to the business plan to accommodate. The, la- the last comment I'd make about the struggling, and Patrick, is that we don't know what the afterburn is we don't, or the, the half-life of this. So if you're struggling now, how long does it take you to recover? And how long have you got before struggling becomes languishing? Because struggling is a very, very densely populated space at the moment. Yeah. 
And the usual trajectory is that without a significant reversal and intervention to work on your well-being, then the only way you're going to go is from struggling to languishing. That's what concerns me. It's kind of like bracing for assumed crash position. I think you're absolutely right there. And, and one thing that, that concerns me at the moment, again, in this part of the world where we're recording this, is because of extended lockdowns and we had a you know, same period in 2020, a lot of folks are, are just accumulating the annual leave and not, and not taking annual leave, not taking the vacation, because for them, the vacation at home is the exact same as being at work yesterday. So therefore, the intervention that often happens by taking leave is not taking place at the moment. So hopefully the lockdowns will, will finish soon and therefore that, that leave burst will occur for many people. But I think the organizations will then have a sudden departure out the front door of everyone taking leave. So there's, a, there's, there's other complexities arising as we sort for this. And I think for people listening in Europe and the States, that is what's happened is that there's kind of been a second disruption as people have embraced months of accrued leaves. Like, excellent, now I can go somewhere, I'm going to do it. Do it. So there's that as a, a business impact that's a worry. But the impact right now on people who aren't taking a regular holiday or break because there's nowhere to go, that's got serious repercussions for those who are pushing themselves really hard through the day. And there's just, there's no rest. There is no unplugging. And if you've got any slightly perfectionistic, controlling, workaholic type tendencies, your work is expanding to fill every little nook and cranny in your, your life if you're not very careful. And so if I'm still in time for anyone, just book a few days off. Don't go anywhere, but just don't do work. Mm. Of course, yourself. Even even if you're saying, "But I love my work, Audrey," I'm like, "Yeah, I don't care." Again, think of chocolate cake. It's just too much and bad for you. The immediate intervention that I certainly have been discussing with with folks I'm working with is take the Friday Monday off, take the long weekends off, and and off meaning no emails, no work. Go for a walk in nature. Go for two walks in nature, but take the take the four days off. So you're you're starting to at least get some reparative. Time frame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's different to taking three or four weeks and going able to go away, but at least giving you, if you're in lockdown, take those short bursts on a regular basis. And observe what happens when you do it, because if you're struggling with that, that is you, your body getting hooked on the chemicals that are being released while you're working and slaving away. And it's getting, you're getting all the endorphin and dof- dopamine releases that are telling you this is important and I need it and I'm necessary. And so that's getting harder and harder to break. So if you're edgy and you're one of the people that say, oh, you know, I can't, I can't do nothing, even although you are enjoying and loving your work, it's not good for your body or your well-being or your health to do it in that way. It's something that I think we're all tone deaf to until you hit the wall. And I, you know, I had a little mini like dent on the wall. I'm lucky. I think you, you've had your own experiences. Most people do, but there's a lot of people who don't get the the gentle collision. They just crash. Yeah. I feel looking that uh, I certainly hit a burnt up period in the early, early 2020 and I was able to take some time off and I went, you know, went down the south coast of New South Wales and I ended up taking three months off, which was quite generous and, and very luxurious. But I certainly had underestimated the impact on my physiology up to that point. And so being able to take that extended period has proven to be fantastically helpful. Let's segue. You said a few minutes ago, and it's something really important. You said, oh, look, you know, this notion of wellness or lack of wellness is not a pandemic issue. It's just been accelerated or accentuated. Before COVID, you had gone down and investigated well-being for the leadership population, and you helped construct Global Leader Wellness Survey. 
And in that, you have six key areas that are really important to look at to, as part of the overall construction of well-being. Let's walk through those and, and help us understand what they are and, and what a leader can do to help amplify that particular construct or that particular factor. First, being authentic relationships. So what we found was that the relational energy, if you like, this social connection that you have with your colleagues, so your peers, your board, the other senior executives in the organization and your teams, the closer those connections, the extent to which you feel respected, trusted and supported are really the key things to be trying to nurture there. And even if you think of yourself as a bit of a tough nut, there is something innately human about wanting to feel a sense of belonging and connection and to feel that we are both trusted by other people and that we are prepared to trust others. And human species has evolved from a cooperative, collaborative perspective, even though, you know, we hear all the high profile stories about politics at work and toxic relationships and psychopaths at the top. Really, they are attention grabbing brilliant headlines, but thankfully the absolute tiny, tiny, tiny minority of what is really experienced. So creating the respect, the trust, the sense of the belonging and investing in those relationships that are important to you. And outside of work, it is around not letting your work harm the relationships that you have with the other key people in your lives, where, of course, it goes beyond trust and respect and a sense of belonging. It's, it's love, it's affection, it's warmth, it's unconditional. And so... It's true what they say, you know, the wisdom around on your deathbed, you don't look back and you know, think, oh, gee, I wish I'd spent more, more hours at work. It, it, you remember the people in your lives. So don't let your work harm those people. And when you're thinking about the strength of your social connection with your colleagues, very, very easy to do the blame game where we look at difficult stakeholders or challenging stakeholders. And just, uh, I'd say, try not to apportion blame. Just ask yourself, what's your part in that? And take a step back and think about how they might experience you and bring it back to what can you respect in them and what do you hope they respect in you? A lot of relationship challenges are around our own insecurities. We might be more easily offended certainly than was intended by the other party. In a previous episode of this podcast, Stuart Elsme from the Open University Australia group talked about over his career, he has leaned more and more into curiosity and less uh, or further away from judgment or blame. And he said the surprising factor that is, is that each time he becomes more curious, he learns a whole lot more. And, and indeed, it helps in his, his CEO role in terms of how he leads his team. And, and it's, a, you know, it's a far more empowering developing relationship than he used to have. But the surprise for him was, as I get more and more curious about my colleagues, I just learn how, how much more brilliant they, they are compared to what I thought they were. Because it takes a really secure leader and somebody who's comfortable in their own skin to say, oh, that's really interesting. They've got a completely different view from me. I'm not, I'm not irritated by that. I'm not threatened by it. I'm not angry at it. I'm just... I wonder why that is, because he's actually a really good guy. So what's going on there? And, you know, it's the levelness with which you're able to meet and accept that without it creating a, a frisson of irritation or, yeah, threat. It always comes back in fight-flight response. But. I think Jennifer Garvey Berger talks about, you know, the step before that is as asking yourself, how could I be wrong? Because if you open the door to I could be wrong, then they might be more right than me. So let me be curious about that. So it, it, it does. It, it builds on, as you quite rightly said, your, your defensiveness. But if you open the door to let me look at this relationship in a, in, a, in a more curious way, I will probably judge them less. I probably will have less blame and shame in my, in my working relationship. And I'm more interested and curious about who they are. 
Yeah. And the importance of all this is if you think back to a time where you've been part of a dream team, a really tight knit close group with whom you are having fun there is some lightness and pleasure and laughter but you know you're doing good stuff then when that's present the other factors which are known to be risks you know they're less threatening to your well-being because the protection that your well-being gets from having the experience of, of working with people who you trust and who you've got their back and they've got yours that is a massive protective factor and the flip is true everything else about your job could be great on paper but if the, if the people that you're working with are not people that you trust and feel connected with and feel supported by, it really is miserable. That's where I think the toxicity comes in. It's not about a toxic person. It's about the impact that it has on us. It's toxic. For teams who are not able to meet as often as they might or indeed never before, and also for some leaders who have joined organizations in the last 12 to 18 months who have not even met their teams properly or very rarely, what are you encouraging people to do to build up that sense of authentic relationship in a remote environment that's extended beyond what they might normally have? It's where I feel really hopeless, actually, because I don't have an answer that I think is adequate to do what we would ideally want it to do. But I think there are some things to accept. You know, as so one, we're working in this virtual world, even if you're a massive fan of the Zoom meetings and the on screen, it's, it's the knowledge around they are more draining. And because we can't see gaze, we can't pick up what are called the micro cues. If you're looking at a screen with little specks of, of 30 faces or even specks of one, you know, one face, it isn't the same. Your brain thinks it's the same. That's why it's more draining because your brain thinks you're in the room with the person. And so it's looking harder and harder and harder to try and find the micro cues about the, the little kind of raised eyebrow, the little snarl of the lip or the slight smirk that's kind of warm. When it's scanning and scanning and scanning, it's like the wheel on your computer that gets stuck. So the brain is chewing through the, the stuff I've been reading is it's like on average around 20% more glucose through a day of Zoom-based meetings than it would be in face-to-face meetings. So that explains the it's exhausting bit. The other bit, when we're with people, the way human communication really works is it's around the tonality and these micro cues and the nonverbal expressions, the congruence with which we're speaking and how we deliver the message and how we're looking and the expressions on our face. All of those things actually carry far more weight than the words themselves. The English language particularly is, is really quite useless as a vehicle for expressing meaning. We distill meaning from the tonality and the, the micro cues and nonverbals. And so in a virtual world, all of that is kind of compromised. Sometimes I know when I'm doing sort of keynotes virtually, I feel like I'm a factor on the stage. It's, it's sort of amplified to the extent that I, I reconcile that by saying, but it is authentically me because I authentically, genuinely want people to feel my passion or interest or connection. And so I think one thing I'd say is just be really mindful of that. And if you have a tendency towards a more monotone or flatter communication style, really try and pay attention to that. And don't rely too much on the words. If the words come out and they're wrong, just retract them. Uh, it's really important if you hear the, the wrong words, you remove them and replace them with something that's better. It's also good for the whole vulnerability and authenticity piece. You know, we're not machines. We're going to say stuff that's not right. Just take them off the table and say, oh, sorry, that came out wrong. I don't think you got how much I really care about that. You have to amplify it. That's one thing. 
uh, and make it more personal, more one-on-one stuff. I know that that feels like it's time-consuming, but I'm not a big fan of the team check-ins because you're deceived by the words. You're deceived by your team saying, yeah, I'm fine. No, good. All fine here. Yep. All fine. No, yep. fine. And it becomes a tick the box then because of that. Yeah. And words are deceptive. They might say they're fine. What are you seeing and what are you hearing? The second thing in, in the construct of the survey is meaning, purpose and direction. And I suspect, if nothing else, the idea of finding meaning from work has become even more important over the last two years. Certainly, I'm hearing a lot more people talking about it. What does your research show in terms of how this builds up to the, novel, no, the sense of well-being? That there's two things. One is, what did the original research show? The original research showed that it is really important to that overall sense of having your optimal energy levels. You, you, your best self and best version of you is one where you feel that the work that you're doing has a point to it, that you're making a contribution that you feel is important, that you have the sort of autonomy and agency to create work that is having an impact and making a difference. The second part of the answer is, what's happened since the pandemic and i think that this is one of the most worrying things about the data that i've been looking at because it's showing a drop in the extent to which senior people so those in leadership positions are finding their work as meaningful and valuable and reinforcing as it was for them pre-pandemic i think there's probably a few things going on there one is probably the first time in in history their histories that you've got a such a prolonged period out of the office environment where you are, you know, at least metaphorically high-fiving one another and validating one another at a subconscious level. So we're not getting those cues around, hey, Patrick, I, I really do think you're great. We're a little bit more remote. And when we're remote, what happens? The human brain just loves to create some worries. What's the narrative? What's the story? It's a double whammy of, oh, now that I've had a decent break away from the office, actually, I'm not so sure this big job is quite as fantastically interesting as I thought it was and why I worked all those hours. With that going on, then plus this, I'm actually not sure I'm feeling quite as respected or needed or wanted as I was. And some of that is because they're not getting the same connection. But it's also because we, you know, a lot of high achievers are anxious high performers and self-doubt is rife. And the conditions for that to get out of control are perfect at the moment. So you know, we're hearing a lot around the talent drain in general and mass resignations. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot, certainly, beyond what the recruiters are telling us. I think there's a lot to believe around movement in the market because I think people are just a bit bored, itchy feet. But for the senior leaders, even if one in 10 of the people who are experiencing this decide to act on it and say, I'm not going back to that role or I'm not doing this anymore, or I want to do it in my terms, that has got massive implications for talent and succession. I think this is the bit that maybe people aren't seeing coming. And I keep finding myself talking about leaders are part of the problem and part of the solution at the moment. I'm just mindful. Any any time I'm having this conversation with an executive, they are just as likely to be going, oh, yes, no, I completely relate to that. Yes, that applies to me. That's they right. might be the, the EGM of talent. So... You know, sign of oh, how much is is at stake and changing. There's another nuance to this that I, I'm I'm increasingly interested in and finding to be important. That is, we tend to put so much on the shoulder of the leader. You know, the leader's role is to blah 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 blah, and all of that is true. And at the moment, the leader is, a per, is one of the people who is struggling, as per your own research, struggling a lot. And we're still asking them to be the provider of blah, 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 to everybody else. 
And I think that, you know, in their own depleted states, because they are working as hard as, as they've ever done and more, I do feel it's an unfair burden to be asking leaders to be that extraordinary leader in a time of, of depletion when they are also going through the exact same scenario as everybody else. I don't know, it feels to me like, you know, where do the expectations start becoming the problem for the leader? It sort of gets into quite Kafka-esque proportions of potential kind of, oh, no, don't let this happen, this injustice. It's kind of, it's the duality around, well, leaders, you've got to be doing your best to look after your people and keep your business going. And so they've heard this message. They've heard it for you know two years at all levels of seniority. This doesn't isn't just people right at the top. I think one of the positives that comes out of the research I've been doing is there has been a statistically significant increase in the extent to which people feel like they are empathic and compassionate and want to support their teams and feel part of a team. So even though we've got this remoteness, there has been a leaning in to, you know, these are our Charles language, a leaning into the soft bits of creating team and, and looking out for people that perhaps was given a little bit short shrift previously. So that's come up. But if you accept the sort of underlying proposition that leaders have got some you know, larger capacity to give more and be more generous and capable, that's true, but everybody has their limits. There's so many metaphors that you could use, but the one that's working for me at the moment is around if you take you know, a really brilliant aeroplane that's been tested and retested to endure, you know, they, and they're probably built to endure 300% of what they're ever going to carry, I feel like leaders are doing that. They have been for a long time now, not just since the pandemic, but for a long time operating at levels beyond the level at which they were built or expected to perform. They have the capacity. They've been using that capacity and they've been holding it together. But just as if you take, you know, the world's best airplane and you take it to the edge of the stratosphere or you send it to the moon, it will implode. You know, it does have a stress test fracture at some place. And we're seeing those fractures occur because leaders being asked to do stuff that is, I think, now just not sustainable. Nonetheless, though, when we think about wellness and and whilst, you know, this this conversation has to look at wellness from the, the years that we started with, but also in the current light of where we're sitting in the world, we look at wellness seeking or getting a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose and direction from my work is both a really important contributor to my sense of wellness and indeed as a leader's role, helping to contribute us towards someone else's sense of wellness as being part of my team or organization. So whilst it's difficult, it's worth acknowledging that abdicating that is clearly not going to help the overall sense of wellness for myself or for my team around me. Yeah, I mean, the reason that we endure and we put up with a lot is because we love what we do. So QED, if we don't quite love what we do as much as we used to, then it is less rewarding, less fulfilling, and our well-being begins to decline. The joy is going. And we hear a fair bit about that these days as well. You know, the fun, the pleasure, but it's also the reward. The what is well-being argument, the philosophical one is around the role of both pleasure and joy and happiness, but also virtue pleasure and the virtue and doing a good piece of work that engages your brain and it's purposeful. That's the virtuous bit and it's pleasure together. So if we don't have as much of that, I agree, it's a problem. The next two areas you, you outline, I think will be not a surprise for most people who read this or who are interested in wellness, resilience and equanimity, the idea of being resilient and calm and the vitality and energy in terms of physical health, nutrition, exercise, sleep, etc. They're the two areas that most people would be innately familiar with. 
The fifth area really I was really interested in, because I think at the moment this is one that's probably impacted a lot, is balance and boundaries. The notion of how do I manage the various aspects of my life and how do I have a boundary between different parts? So I might be transitioning from one part of my life to the next part of my life. Not necessarily work-life balance, but the balance between the various parts. So can you talk about, about why that's important and what are you noticing at the moment in terms of that particular area? Do you remember earlier when I said it's seeping into every nook and cranny? So this is where I think we're probably got a bit of a bimodal distribution. So I think there are those who have caught on to this and are now working in a more sustainable, uber-disciplined way. They, they bookend their days, they're conscious around taking their breaks, moving back-to-back meeting schedules, etc. But on average, the data shows very clearly, and it's getting worse the longer the pandemic is going on. So what was already bad is getting worse and is continuing to do so in a statistically significant way. And those are themes around back-to-back meetings, spending excessive amounts of time uh, just sitting down in front of a screen or in front of a computer. There's the monotony of your four walls feeling pulled in so many different directions, racing against the clock. The work is never done. And if you love it, this is where it comes back to the discipline and walking away. So how do you know when it's time to switch off? And And it's effortful to insert that pause in your day in a way that perhaps wasn't so effortful if you knew you had to be on the 6.05 p.m. train or you had a restaurant to go to or the theatre or, you know, something that enforced the break in the day. For some leaders, it can be really quite painful to stop work because there can be the realisation of, well, if I'm not working, who am I? So, so, so you talk about balancing the other bits of you, but what do you do if all the bits of you are your work? That's another element of this balance and boundaries. I've noticed the last thing you just said for folks who live alone and therefore pre-lockdown, they obviously have other structures in place like going to the gym, like going to a restaurant, like going to the pub, like whatever, yeah. going to the theatre. And they became the structures that prevented work seeping into all aspects of their life. But now that they're at home, those structures don't take place. So the boundaries are, just, there is, well, there's no boundary. It's just, there's just that. And yes, it gives a sense of meaning and identity because most of the other aspects of the identity is no longer there. But it is having an adverse reaction from a health perspective, for sure. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's where sort of the model can be quite helpful. So it's a tick. Yes, it gives me some purpose. It, it is interesting and satisfying. Those are the good bits about it. But the bad bits about it are what it's doing to our physical health and that whole hitting the wall cognitively. One of the insidious things about cognitive tiredness is that we don't, we don't feel pain in our brains in the same way that we do if we hurt our knee. So if you overuse your knee, you rest it, generally speaking, or you take some Panadols or you ice it, but you take appropriate action. When you do what I refer to as brain bombing, you just keep going. And the narrative is around, this is interesting, I like it, I'm enjoying it, it's fine, I've got nothing else to do. Then because it's delivering a tick in the box for some bits of your well-being, we are becoming masterful at disconnecting from the more harmful elements of it. So an example, probably a bit basic, is when I'm really absorbed in a task and I'm enjoying doing it, I don't really eat, I don't remember to go to the bathroom, I don't stretch. Now, none of those things on a one-day basis are disastrous, but if I repeat that, actually, it is 
fairly disastrous musculoskeletal issues, not to get too basic about it, but gastrointestinal issues are on the increase significantly. Our life expectancy gets reduced if we're sitting down for more than 15 hours a day, which we were even before the pandemic, by the time you put commutes, TV time, sitting in the office, all of that in. So sitting down and not moving enough is really bad. And the brain overuse is really bad. I've started thinking about this specific area, the, the, the idea of balance and boundaries. I've started thinking about this as in the current environment of extended lockdowns as a needed defensive strategy as opposed to offensive strategic strategy. And what I mean by that is I find in my, in my own life, I've had to overtly put in what I now consider to be really basic but fundamental structures, i.e. a sp- specific time of day, I just stop working because I could go and I go for a walk at nighttime. And that's my, that's my signal to me and that my day is finished. And I when I come back, I'm not looking at an email or whatever it is. In the morning, my, my, my signal is I don't look at my emails till after a specific time or I don't start eating till a specific time or whatever. But I've had to put in basic structures because there's no other structures in place like I used to have. And I, and I found that the overt doing that is a defensive strategy to not slip as opposed to be flourishing. And I think at the moment it's working, but I, I just noticed that that had to be a very cognitive, choiceful process for me. Very mindful, very deliberate, very purposeful. Some of us need this more than others. Uh, from a dispositional, temperamental point of view, some of us are naturally more structured, organized, disciplined, methodical, and they've probably already got some structures that they've adapted. Not saying that you're none of those things better, but if if you're more generally flexible or spontaneous or less planful, then you don't naturally think about imposing those sorts of structures. And then on top of that, your gym membership's gone and all the other routines have gone. So it just becomes a big mush. We've heard for since the pandemic started about the obligation leaders have to be looking after others, their duty of care to other people. I think there is an obligation to do exactly as you've done, which is to look after what you need and write your own rule book. And it's not like we, you know, anybody listening in can take uplift your rule book and apply it to their lives because that's that whole piece around well-being is messy and it's different and our circumstances are all different. But having the courage to A, take sufficient time to acknowledge that you're not thriving and that things are declining and to explore and be curious about why that is and what do you need? I think here it's about being realistic, not about turning us all into iron men and women with 10 hours sleep a night and perfect relationships everywhere. It's like, well, what matters to you at the moment? And that's the clue around what a boundary is. The boundary is around what's okay and what's not okay for you in your life, in your shoes at this moment. And your best clue to knowing where you need to set boundaries is about where you find yourself getting cranky. What's making, so, so a boundary might be with your children if they're, or you're, you said you're an empty nester. Did you? I have told you in the past, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, you, you know, you set the boundaries around who's, who's getting access to the television when you're all trying to see the same thing. But your time boundaries are good. And you see your time boxing, your bookending the days. But it's about where if you don't do it and you're doing the whole late night bedtime procrastination thing, what are you cranky with about yourself where you think tomorrow I'm going to do that differently? That is the goal. That's where you say, that's what I need to fix. I think that's an extraordinary, uh, simple and, and insightful comment. You write your own rule book. 
we know most leaders are really good at writing their own rubrics because they're they're self-empowered, they're self-propelled on many, many levels. But at the moment, the whole world has kind of conspired to uh, take the rule books we all knew and throw them into the bin and, and, and there's no new rule book has emerged yet. So therefore, how do we create, even if it's a temporary rule book, at least it's a rule book that I can structure myself for. And I, I love your comment there. Use a signal of what are you getting cranky about? And that's your signal to go, okay, that edge is there. So what's the rule book you want to create around that edge to, to help yourself? I think it's not just you that you'll help when you do that. Going back to the the, the well-worn headline of leaders must look after their people at the moment more. Genuinely, I just don't think you can do a good job of this unless you're doing it for yourself. At risk of being overly reductionist, I'd sort of say, okay, there's, there's a few things you need to do. If you really want to support employee well-being, you need to learn about what well-being is and what mental health is. And you need to sort of embrace this as an emerging area so learn it and then you've got to live it yourself well-being isn't something that's necessary for the little people or the people who are vulnerable or at risk well if you're a human you've got well-being and mental health needs including you as senior leaders so what do you need right now and unless you're doing that really your people aren't stupid there's an authenticity issue if you're then saying, oh, you know, I know you've had a really hard day, go for a run before you do your report. That A is not really what we mean by empathy. That's cognitive empathy. It's like I get I should be showing emotion and concern. You're not doing it. You're not practicing what you preach. And coming back to boundaries, probably not even a good piece of guidance to give you people unless you are adjusting what you're expecting from them at the same time. And this is happening at the highest, highest levels. So one thing we haven't talked about, but I just want to get in before we run out of time, is the significantly differential adverse impact on senior working women from men. And that's not to detract from the challenges that many men are having, but we knew pre-COVID that the balance and boundaries piece was a much more significant challenge for working senior women than senior males. And that situation has worsened in a way that is deeply confronting is that because of the responsibility from a home perspective and a children perspective, or is there other reasons for that? There are other reasons. So the, the, the most obvious practical one is they are being split between too many competing demands for their attention, including those with, with childcare obligations. It's also a bit to do with some of the emotional disposition. And so men essentially feel more secure in their relationships, less inclined to worry about what the boss is thinking about them, less less reflective on what's going well, what's going less well. So working from home, senior women doing that are then more prone to going, actually, this is just getting too hard. The joy is going, I'm losing, you know, my sense of being centred and grounded. I don't feel I'm doing a very good job at anything. So that sets the rotting. So it's a really concerning picture. We're coming towards towards the end of our, of our time here, and it's, it's been a really useful and very helpful conversation on wellness. Where's your sense of optimism coming from? Or do you have a sense of optimism from the notion of wellness? It's funny you, sh- you should say that because I just thought, gosh, I'm sounding very negative. I do have a sense of optimism because I think that we're going through growing pains. I think this is a truly transformational experience. I think we've got a bit of a longer rough patch to go. We are learning more about this every day. High achievers are reaching the limits of their capacity and they are saying, okay, I've got to do this for themselves. So they're learning it, they're living it. And when they're doing that, it's much more authentic and genuine that they will start to be able to lead it really effectively for their people. Because leading effectively isn't just about this message of, you know, oh, we've all got to look after ourselves and you've got to look after your well-being. This duality of the leader being part of the problem and the solution 
I think the good thing about leaders being so stressed is they are now themselves in a position that says, okay, we really have to look at the rule book here, not just my personal rule book, but the rule book of the post-industrial revolution, Monday to Friday, the margins that we're running at as a business. Who said that this was the the right you know, return on a headcount employee? Who said this was the right margin? And I might be being a bit optimistic here, but I do think those conversations are coming, partly because the regulation and the legislation is going to drive that, mm-hmm. but partly because leaders are saying, yeah, it is time for sustainable working practices. I don't want to leave this. I actually do love bits of my job, but I don't love these bits and I can't do these bits. So there's a bit of self-interest now, I think, to say, yeah, let's change some of the system. And if those conversations are happening, they're yeah. starting. I, I agree with you. I've, whilst I think, we, you know, and a lot of our conversation today was talking about the tough parts of leaders' roles in, in the sense of well-being, and all that is true. What I am noticing is humans are not structured to remember very well, but when we have lots of conversations, it becomes a transformation and there's, there, this, this conversation is alive every single day and therefore something is, is happening and shifting and the awareness around what to do is becoming much louder. Audrey, it's been a real pleasure to have you here and appreciate you making time. We, we will link into the show notes, Global Leader Wellness Wellbeing Survey, GLWS and everything else. You have an extraordinary informative blog that I think people should subscribe to. I've certainly learned a lot over the last few months. Before we hang up, the question I ask everybody in every conversation, including people at the bus stop, when I do go to the bus stop, what is your favorite song or your favorite band? It's just a matter of interest. I'm listening to your podcast and I knew you were going to ask me this. So I love music generally, but no, uh, Simple Minds is where I arrived at. Say, given your heritage, it have to be Simple Minds. They're Scottish. I love their music. It reminds me of the lovely bits of my youth. They owned a house about 10 miles away on the, one of the most beautiful bits of the Scottish countryside on, on Loch Erin, where I grew up as a five-year-old. So there's a lot of sentimentality and connection there. So Simple Minds. One of my very first outdoor concerts was a young band from Dublin called U2 who were supporting the Eurythmics, who were supporting Simple Minds. And it was an extraordinary experience. So yes, I, I can imagine uh, why Simple Minds would be your, one of your favourites. And given the things we've talked about, what would you now tell the 29-year-old version of yourself, given all the wisdom you've accumulated? Okay, I'd say you're going to be all right. You can endure a lot more than you think. The human spirit can endure a lot more than you think. And the dark, without sounding too flippant about it, the darkness, the grief, the anxiety, anything like that that you're experiencing, while you would cut your right arm off not to experience it again, is enriching and it deepens you as a person. So that that would be one. I'd also say don't bend yourself in two for people who are not ready to be bent yourself two for. The compassion and caring is good, but be be wise, selfish around not martyring yourself. That's time I wouldn't say I martyred myself, that's too much. But learning to speak about what you want and what you need in a timely manner, rather than trying to keep everybody else happy first, because that backfires on you and it backfires on them. So learn to ask for what you need and you want and state it loudly and clearly. And it's not being rude or selfish or indulgent. It's actually a kindness for everyone. That's what I would love. That's what would have been really handy. Speak your mind more clearly and plainly. Amen to that. Audrey, so, so good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation 
Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider, and I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So, to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs, or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.